Thanks for joining us this week, and welcome to Mutuality Matters, a weekly podcast hosted by CBE International, where our mission is to promote the biblical message that God calls women and men of all cultures, races, and classes to share authority equally in service and leadership in the home, church, and work. Let's get into this week's episode. We are so excited to have you with us today. You are listening to CBE's podcast, Mutuality Matters, the global impact of egalitarian theology on human flourishing. Kim and I are just utterly thrilled and honored to welcome our host, Scott Arbiter, who served in some very inspiring leadership positions. Uh, he was a, a partner with the Arthur Anderson firm and lead pastor with Elmbrook Christian Church in Milwaukee. And most recently, he's had a distinguished career with World Relief as its president and as a chair of the board at a prior point. Scott continues to mentor uh, and encourage leaders, young uh, leaders especially, in various Christian organizations. And so it is with great joy that we welcome you, Scott, to our podcast. Thank you, Mimi and Kim. It's a pleasure to be with you. Scott, in August, you retired as president of World Relief after serving as both chair of their board and as president could you share with our audience who's unfamiliar with World Relief uh, who they are and what they do? I'd be happy to. Kim, World Relief is the relief and development arm of the National Association of Evangelicals. And it, it really began out of um, the war-torn aftermath of World War II, when a lot of Christians across the country were asking, how could we be of help in a place that was so far away? And especially in the 1940s, when it was so difficult logistically and with communications, what happened is a number of Christians got together and said, perhaps we can do something together that we can't do alone. And World Relief was formed to try to bring relief to the suffering of war-torn Europe in both word and in deed. In the 75 plus years since, World Relief has continued to refine its model. We, we really focus on disaster relief extreme poverty, violence and oppression, and refugees, immigrants, and displaced people. Uh, we've been doing that uh, in about 100 countries over those years. And uh, the best records we have would indicate we've probably reached in the area of 100 million people over that time. The distinctive for us is our work through the church. Our mission is to empower the church to serve the most vulnerable. And just as an evidence of how that works in the countries we work in, including the US, where we have 25 offices, we have 1500 staff, but we have 95,000 volunteers. Mm -hmm. So the power is through empowered churches, catching the vision to rise up and be who they were called to be. My goodness, that is a phenomenal vision. And when you think about it, you know, it's a, a humanitarian organization intricately involved with the life of the church. And it's just great to hear more about that. We're, we're eager to hear 
both how you became a Christian and how that intersected with your work with World Relief. Well, um, as, a, as a young boy, I always had this longing to know God. There was a certain desire, but it, it was really unmet when I went to the church my parents were involved in. It was largely liturgical and ritual, and to me, it was cold formalism, and it, it didn't spark my spiritual imagination or draw me near to God. Now, I think the Apostle Paul would say that the law that I encountered did its job, however, because it convinced me that I could not be close to God on my own merits. And I began reading scripture, and I began um, listening to some Christian friends who began telling me about what they had encountered with Christ. And the truth was there was an explosion of grace that God brought my way, making me aware of both his truth and his holiness, but of his amazing grace that would receive me not on my merits, but on what Jesus had done. And that led me into a long journey with Jesus. And as you mentioned, it took place in the marketplace and in the church world. But then it finished up in my career, if you will, at World Relief. And the reason it, I was really struck by World Relief is it was doing something better than I had seen anyone else doing. Mm. When, I, when I think about the good news of the gospel, my progressive friends will often point to Luke chapter 4, where Jesus inaugurates his gospel ministry. And when he's got the scroll of Isaiah handed to me, and he says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And he speaks of freedom for prisoners and sight for the blind and setting the oppressed free. And that's all true. But my more conservative friends, when asked what the good news is, would turn to Matthew 28. And they would say, it's therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to do what I commanded you. And what I discovered was too often those two were being set up against each other. And it made no sense to me that we would set up what Jesus said in his inaugural message and his last words, and we would not see that everything he did in between was a fulfillment of the expression of both. If we look at Matthew chapter 9, Jesus said, it says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues. So he's teaching, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. What I saw in World Relief was this wonderful juxtaposition of the gospel and word and deed. And I fell in love with World Relief in 2001 when I first, uh, first joined the board. And I fell in love with her over and over and over again as I got to do the work and be in the places in the U.S. and around the world to see the gospel come to life. Wow. That is truly inspiring. And what really struck me, Scott, in working with World Relief uh, here and there was its commitment to gender equality. And I, I, I would love to hear maybe some pivotal events in your life personally or professionally that helped shape your own views as president of World Relief and its commitment to women's equality? Well, I would say it was a progressive realization over time. Um, I, I was not uh, initially 
egalitarian. Uh, I didn't know the scriptures well enough to know exactly why I believed what I believed, but I had the enormous privilege of sitting under the teaching of Stuart Briscoe, who many would say was one of the foremost Bible teachers of the last 50 years. And I learned from Stuart that I could hold a high view of scripture and I could hold a high view of women in leadership and exercising their God-given gifts and find no inconsistency between holding those two. And so Stuart helped me understand the beauty of the scriptures and the beauty of a high view of women in leadership with integrity. But then his wife, Jill Briscoe, um, made it very practical for me because Jill is a gifted teacher and leader in her own right. And for many years, she was denied the right to do either teaching or leading. But in time, she became uh, known for uh, her invitations to teach at Moody's uh, Founders Week, which had not allowed women to teach previously. She became a year-by-year -year favorite. She began to exercise her leadership on the boards, such as World Relief and Christianity Today. And she brought integrity and excellence to those things that for most of her life, a woman thought, uh, people thought a woman could not do. Mm. So it was a theological and a practical uh, example I had. But added to that was the fact I had three daughters. And those three daughters, um, who I love more than I have words for, I wanted them to enter into the fullest expression of what God had placed into them. Mm. And, you know, we all remember the parable of the talents where we're instructed, do not bury your talents. And we should have an appropriate fear of burying our talents. I have an even greater theory, fear of burying the talents of others. Oh, amen. Amen. Yes, I've noticed that in my work with CBE, often it's father's visceral empathy for their daughters that propels them forward in wanting to elevate the gifts of women overall. So your story is just glorious. Kim? Yes, and I love that you brought in Jill Briscoe because she's the one that I've heard about and I have loved over the years. And I have to admit that while I listened to you, uh, tears came to my eyes as I just was touched by how God has worked in your life um, for these truths. Um, Scott, my background is in international public health. And so when I look at world relief, my public health brain jumps out. And so I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the situation for refugees, because refugees are among the most vulnerable, vulnerable people in the world. They have fled traumatic events, and often in doing so, they are abused in unthinkable ways, especially mm -hmm. women. Uh, they arrive in a new place where they have no community, they don't know the language, they don't know the culture, and these conditions make them really vulnerable to further abuse. So I was wondering if you could speak to the situation that they find themselves. And how do you see scripture speaking to this situation? Well, Kim, I think you described it very well. I think any of us, if, if we, for example, take a look at the 
deep, deep trauma happening in Ukraine right now. And we place ourselves in that spot, particularly for the women and the children who are the ones who are largely fleeing the country. They don't know where the next meal comes from. They don't know if they're gonna be safe on the way. They don't know what they're gonna find when they get there. And those things are traumatic. But if you think about the Ukrainians, as traumatic as that is for people in other cultures and places, whether it be the Democratic Republic of Congo or Yemen or Myanmar, many other places, they're fleeing not to a friendly neighbor as the Ukrainians are with largely Poland or Moldova, they're fleeing to people who don't even want them. And they don't know if they're gonna be safe. They know they don't know the language. They don't know if they'll ever return home. They don't know if they can, where they're gonna sleep, if they can protect their children. And then the nations they come to have these expectations that they're gonna be immediately productive and self-sufficient. My goodness, they're in PTSD from the incredible trauma that they've suffered. And, and you're right, Kim, especially vulnerable are the women and the children, uh, sexual violence, trafficking, or just being manipulated and abused by the power structures that are there. And what we know is we've discovered this tragically at World Relief. Those who are most vulnerable, they suffer first, they suffer most, and they suffer the longest. Yeah. And you ask, you know, what, how does scripture inform me on this? Well, I think as Americans, we have this tendency to think that God has a preferred people. And we tend to think it's probably us because we, we see our freedoms, our security, our wealth, and think God must be really fond of us. Well, God does have pref uh, a preference for some people, but it's not us. It's for the widow and the orphan and the refugee and the poor Walter Storff so accurately describing them as the quartet of the vulnerable. And the truth is the Bible is a narrative of the immigrant and the refugee, Abraham and Joseph, Israel itself, and immigrants coming into Israel, such as Ruth. And we have to remember that Jesus was a refugee. And there are so many passages of scripture that addresses, but I'll, I'll mention one that I think just so powerfully gets to the heart of God's heart of how he views these people. He says in Leviticus 19, he says, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as you love yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt, and I am the Lord your God. So we know that God identifies with the marginalized and the poor and the oppressed. And that's why Jesus in Matthew 25 talked about the sheep and the goats. And a lot of it was based on how did we address compassion and dignity and mercy and love for those who were so far removed from those things because of the circumstances that they were in. Mm. Exactly. All right. Well, Scott, that is just, you're speaking my heart. And again, I'm crying. So um, we'd like to take a short break where I can recover <laughs> and where we can highlight uh, CBE's upcoming international conference. 
Registration is now open for CBE's 2022 International Conference in Atlanta, Georgia. Join us in person August 5th through 7th as we explore the fullness of Galatians 3.28 beside leaders from around the world like Craig and Medine Keener, Mimi Haddad, Michelle Sanchez, David Hart, Michelle Williams, Grace Alzubi, and many more. We want you to be a part of the conversation on women, race, and ethnicity. You can register now as an individual for $299. Group and membership discounts are also available. Visit CBE's website to see information on the event schedule, lodging, speakers, and sponsorship opportunities. Register today at cbe.today forward slash 2022-C-O-N-F. Scott, I want to continue on, um, on the work of World Relief and your experience there. And I'm wondering how your work with them has informed your views on male-female power dynamics, organizationally within World Relief and on the field? Let me start with um, organizationally. One of the things that I'm really pleased about at World Relief was for many years, it has been committed to uh, gender inclusion. But I'd have to admit that our practices didn't always line up to our principles. And I had the privilege of joining many others and saying, we really do want to be better at that. And we began to recognize that it was going to require really intentional work of looking at our structures and our attitudes. And we had to make intentional choices about bringing more women into um, the leadership. Now, when I say that, I'm I'm a little cautious about it because I think one of the risks is that men think that somehow we can dispense some kind of a grace or favor to women by inviting them in. What we're really doing is is acknowledging that God has already invited women in and we're just appropriately making place for what God has already, in my view, established. So it's not out of our goodwill, our favor, our grace. It's out of a recognition that we are incomplete without the female voice. And so World Relief um, really has worked hard at increasing the number of women uh, on our board. I'm really pleased to see the executive leadership right now is equal parts male and female. And in the field, we're finding a deep commitment uh, in the US and across, particularly Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, to raising up female leadership. In fact, the last three country directors that have been named for World Relief have all uh, been women. And so uh, it it's a commitment that has to move from being a program to a culture. Programs don't last, culture does. Mm-hmm. And it has to be rooted in a biblical conviction and a practical determination and frankly, um, a matter of repentance that uh, we have not honored um, the image of God in the female in the way that we ought to have and we, we need to get right mm-hmm. in that. So those would be a couple of quick observations on that, Kim. That's very helpful, Scott, and thank you for that. I know other organizations are working towards similar goals. And and you're right, it does very much involve a shift in culture, beginning with 
leaders modeling that culture shift in intentional ways. And you wrote, in fact, speaking of culture and the church, you wrote the foreword to our recent book, Created to Thrive, a book that very much speaks about church culture as it prevents or actually fuels uh, abuse in the Christian community, family, and so on. Can you speak, uh, please, to the issue of abuse from the perspective of a Christian humanitarian leader? Yeah, um, it's, a, it's a hard but necessary topic. Um, you know, ab um, abuse is a scourge in our culture broadly and in our cultures around the world, whether it's physical, sexual, emotional, the abuse of power, uh, it's broad and it's deep. It's not unique to Christian humanitarian work by any means, but we'd be foolish to not believe it exists among us. We have far too many examples of it. We have far too many women who have been marginalized and scarred by these things. And I, I think that there are some, perhaps, while it's not unique to Christian humanitarian work, I think there are some risks that are perhaps more unique to us um, one is that I think too often in the church and in Christian work, we have cultures that reward the use of power over humility. We reward the leader who is bold and aggressive. And the notion of the leadership of Jesus, which was a self-emptying leadership, is not celebrated. We celebrate the culture of power. And what falls off of that is we also accept then manipulation and even abuse as long as the results are there. Right. Tragic reality. Now, I don't, you know, I don't want to say broadly people choose to accept it as long as there's results, but I think sometimes that's true and sometimes tacitly it's true. And there's a lack of accountability because so many leaders have been surrounded by protectors of that leader or protectors of the ministry or protectors of the, the reputation of that ministry. And they say, oh, we can't possibly address this because look at all the harm it would cause. Well, what is the harm of living in abusive sin and covering it? And I think that what, you know, less heinous than covering it up is an issue that still dangerous, and that is extending unfettered trust to leaders, where there's just an assumption that they've got to be doing everything right. There's, there's no proper inspection, oversight, and accountability, and sometimes that's enabled by distance and isolation in remote fields. And it's probably all fueled by a patriarchy that denies a woman's voice and credibility when she raises the very issue that there's abuse and manipulation going on. Now, what I, what I want to wash your ears on a little bit there is to say there are bright spots. And we've seen a lot of bright spots and I can only speak really specifically to World Relief. We are seeing really significant process in accountability, in failing uh, or, or, or rejecting the idea that we're gonna reward the use of power over humility, or that we're gonna accept results regardless of how those results were achieved. 
the, the matter of mutual submission and mutual love and mutual respect between women and men that drives a whole different culture of accountability and of listening and of repentance, uh, we're seeing it take root. We're, we're far from perfect in this, but I am really excited about the depth of commitment and the progress we're seeing. Mm. Wow, I love that you ended on um, the progress that is happening because I agree with you. I mean, first we need to recognize the patriarchy and the power that is rewarded as you pointed out, but um, things are changing in many places and it's powerful. Um, working as a humanitarian worldwide, when we think about this issue, um, what changes have you seen as a result of communities where World Relief is working that are leaning into scripture's teachings on human mutuality? Uh, what I would tell you is that when cultures lean into that, and that's one of our primary roles, is really to invite people into the discussions. We use something called the Transformation Tree Curriculum. We enter into community and we ask the leaders to talk about good fruit and bad fruit. It's an agricultural metaphor that translates around the world. And we will ask them, so what creates good fruit in your community? And they would say, well, you know, a good tree. Well, what are the parts to the tree? And we work, you know, right from, you have to have health, to get good fruit, you have to have to have healthy branches attached to a healthy trunk, attached to healthy root systems. And then we ask them to define good fruit or define bad fruit. And when we do that on the notion of gender inclusion and the Imago Dei in the female, uh, and they grab hold of it. I'll tell you what happens to ministry. It gets richer and it gets more sustainable and it goes viral because what happens is that when the women are empowered and their voices are heard and they are shaping the ministry and they're taking the proper place in there, everything gets better because we know half the sky, right? When you empower the woman, you empower the child and then you empower the community. And do you know what? Men start to take notice. And they start to saying, this is a good we have missed. And not only will we accept it, we're going to invest in it, and we're going to protect it, and we're going to give ourselves to it. And when that happens, people around those communities start talking about it, and it spreads not only geographically, but it spreads across the generations. Mm. Because when you change something in that moment in time, in that community, and it's rooted in biblical values, that gets translated like the rock thrown into the pond and those ripples go through the generations. So women and girls for generations are going to benefit from those changes. And it makes its way not just in the principles, but in the practical ministry of helping women have agency, even in things such as um, choosing birth spacing. They have agency in addressing the matter of healing when they've been traumatized mm -hmm. by sexual violence, bringing them to a place of health and a restored place in their community. And it's complicated and the work is incomplete, but it's going on and it gets richer and more sustainable when we begin to really understand and grapple with this beautiful gem of mutuality. Mm. 
Scott, I really love the way you speak about how an awareness of the Imago Dei, the image of God in men and women, the teachings of scripture really propel an awareness of women's essential role, essential voice and agency in human flourishing and in Christian work. What do you believe are some key elements that tend to hinder that system as you note it? Well, um, we do still struggle um, broadly. And, you know, I'm encouraged by the progress, but not satisfied. And I think that's a bit like how God is with us. He's, he's pleased with our baby steps, but he's never satisfied until we learn how to get our stride. And we have work yet to do. And there are a variety of things that do that. And, and I don't want to speak, um, you know, and, and accuse anyone of anything. I'll tell you that I'm shaped by the knot holes I've been pulled through. I'm shaped by my own history and arrogance and misunderstandings. Um, and I suspect I'm not alone on that. One, one thing I think that holds us back is an inconsistent application of scripture. You know, when I was um, lead pastor at Elmbrook and I would have um, women in the pulpit, I would fairly regularly get someone thumping my chest saying, haven't you read 1 Timothy 2.12? And I would say, yes, I have. And, and they, they were embracing, I do not allow a woman to teach with all their heart. And I said, well, I said, let's agree that scripture is the guide for our belief and our practice, but let's go down to verse 15, you, which says a woman will be saved in childbearing. Do you believe that? So my question for you is until you can understand verse 15 and the tide of verse 12, don't jump all over verse 12 until you've tried to put this whole thing in context. And when you have come back and we'll have the conversation. In the meantime, this woman is using the gifts that God has given her under the authority of the leadership of this church who invited her and embraced those gifts, and you're going to benefit from them. So I think um, that's one issue is inconsistent application of scripture, but it's also even inconsistent application in practical ways. We will let women do leadership and teaching on the mission field that we won't let them do in the popular culture within the churches. We're, we're willing to sanctify that work in the mission field, but we'll exclude women from it here. That's not consistent. Right. And I think, you know, maybe the last thing I'll say is it's a failure to see, and I'll speak to my own life, a failure to see the power of patriarchy that is not sourced in scripture but in sourced in history and in our unrepentant hearts. Mm, and yes. that's what protects what's going on there. Uh, I'm gonna I'm 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 gonna ask for Grace to give you one more because I think as I'm thinking about it, it is also a failure of the vision of the new creation, a failure of the experience of the richness of diversity, the solidarity and the joy that come when women and men are leading in mutual love, mutual submission, mutual respect, and the joy that comes out of it, and the fruit that comes out of that. And if we don't have the imagination or the experience of that, we won't long for it. We won't invest in it. Wonderful. Thank you. 
Pat, um, last year, the UN issued what is called a concept note, 2021 Room 5. But what this does is it summarizes ideas and actions that emerged on gender equality. And the document identifies two points. The first is that religious patriarchy is one of the greatest obstacles to humanitarian, humanitarian goals. And two, the positive outcomes of working with faith actors in dismantling patriarchy. Can you comment on these two points from your experiences? <clears throat> yeah, I can, and I think that um, both of those are broadly true. You know, our, our beliefs drive our behaviors. And no lasting change is possible without a change in our core beliefs. So I referred earlier to our transformation treat curriculum. When we get a chance to walk into a community and address those belief systems, including those about patriarchy, we find that there can be rich conversations that actually take those male leaders and bring them to a place of understanding where they not only accept, they begin to embrace, and then they begin to advocate for the role of the woman in the community. So patriarchy can be deeply rooted in the culture and the history. But when we work with a community in humility, we find that we can go on a journey with them and we can challenge some of those thoughts. I'll give you an example. We, we've been working for years now with the Turkana people in Northern Kenya. It's, it's a very, very rich culture and it's one of the oldest untouched cultures anthropologists will point to. And it is large, largely um, a herding culture and uh, in drought stricken areas. So when we would go and work with the leaders there and many of them would proclaim to be Christ followers, but while they are resilient and resourceful people, many of their beliefs were driving practices that were not helpful to their well-being. For example, the culture was such that uh, the men would take the herds and they would go out 25, 50 or more kilometers to try to find water. And if a woman gave birth in that time, the culture was the child could not be named except by the father. So they would have to send runners to go find the father. And days or maybe a week or a week and a half later, the father would finally come. And you'd say, well, what's the problem with that? Well, here's the problem. Because not only could a child only be named by the father, but the child could not be put to the breast until it had a name. So children were dying. So we would, we would visit with those elders and we would say, Let's talk about good fruit and bad fruit. What is this? Is that a good fruit or a bad fruit when a child dies? What's a bad fruit? What's the belief system that is the root out of which? And is it a biblical root system? And when they could begin to arrive at that truth on their own, that they had misunderstood the scriptures, and they were, at, they were giving something power in their lives that was actually destroying children but they could turn from that. But take that to the next step, the girl child, not having an education, not being valued. We could begin to say, well, what does the scripture say about the girl child? Is there any reason to believe that she's made less in the image of God than the boy child? Why are we not investing in her education, in her flourishing? 
But then you can go beyond that and say, well, if you've now agreed that the girl child should be invested in, what of her mother mm-hmm. or her aunt or her grandmother? And so while patriarchy can be a real impediment, when we work in humility in the community and we begin to look at the fruit and the root system and the belief system and we bring it to a biblical reality, we find the culture changes and it's life-giving in many ways. Right. Wow, powerful stories. Very, very vivid and helpful. I shall never forget this story. I'm wondering, as you mentor and counsel and consult with leaders um, in the humanitarian world and beyond, and, and as you help them dismantle beliefs that lead to bad fruit, um, and I've certainly seen this in my own work. Uh, Christian humanitarians around the world love the Lord and they want to see good fruit and they want to see human flourishing, but they still struggle with gender equality and they, they are less likely to see that as a consequence of a bad idea or a bad reading of scripture. How do you... Scott, help in that space? How do you help expose some of the challenges between human flourishing and a bad reading of scripture? It's a great question, Mimi. And I think the reality is, is that um, most of us don't learn well if we feel like we're being scolded or if we're being told, you know, we just don't get it. And I know I don't. And I also have um, sisters and brothers that I respect greatly who read the scripture differently than I do on any host of topics. So I find that what's most helpful is to create relationship that allows us to go on a journey together and say, come, let us reason together. And let's, let's do this work of unpacking what part of that scripture have we accepted that is shaped more by cultural history than biblical history. And can we recognize that some of that is really, we've accepted it as biblical when we haven't really understood the context, or we haven't really understood the realities, or we haven't understood the trajectory of God's working among women. I see a trajectory in the scripture where, you know, starting, you know, throughout history, but really punctuated with Jesus's ministry, where he said, this beautiful part of creation called the female, he gave place and honor that no one in his time was giving. That's a really important signal for us. And so I think it's a matter of creating common ground in mutual respect, and saying, come, let us reason together. And you know, we don't always get to the same place. But I find that when we can approach it that way, most of us are willing to at least mm-hmm. hold the possibility that maybe it is not as binary as I thought it was. And maybe I can make more room. Mm-hmm. Right. And ultimately, would you not agree? It's the work of the spirit in our lives. Yes. It's, it's God's work and God can be trusted. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Scott. Oh my goodness. Kim, do you not wish we had three hours with Scott today? 
Oh my gosh, Scott. I feel like you put all of my heart and my thinking and my reading of scripture together so perfectly. I don't know how many, I don't, I have had a lot of interviews that I've loved what people have said, but I don't cry through most of the interviews. And <laughs> <laughs> this one, I cried through most of it. Thank you so much. Well, it's been my delight to be with you. I'm so grateful for the work that you guys are doing at CBE and any chance I get to put my shoulder underneath it in some small way, I'm honored. Well, we assure you, we'll be calling you again. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. And we just pray a blessing on your work as you uh, continue to inspire the next generation of leaders as you have us today. And um, thank you, listeners, for your careful attention to this very wise interview. And God bless. Hey, Kim, was that an excellent, amazing, inspiring interview? And did you stop crying even once? I think maybe for a couple seconds when I was trying to get my next question ready, and then I would start crying again. (laughs) (laughs) He just so perfectly put together um, my world of public health and what we see on the field and how Jesus' good news in scripture dramatically changes the whole equation for women. And then how that changes the equation for men and boys in the whole community. Everyone. And how this, yes, everyone. And how, when you understand scripture correctly, and I loved also how he took the conservative view of of Matthew 28 and put it together with Luke 4, which Mm -hmm. both of those verses like speak to me. And he said, we need to hear the whole thing and not pit pit Jesus against Jesus. I mean, really, come on. And then when we hear the whole thing, Mm -hmm. how that transforms our understanding of Jesus Mm -hmm. and our world. Oh, it was so great. It was, it definitely was. He's, he's a pastor, humanitarian advocate for women's equality as a Christian ideal, all wrapped up into one big powerhouse. Yeah. I am so excited for our audience to hear this interview, honestly. I'm going to listen to it every day for about a week. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Well, Mimi, I think that it's time to close off this interview. And I just want to thank you, our audience, for joining us today. Thank you. Stay tuned. Yes. Stay tuned to the new episodes coming to you weekly from our incredible team of co-hosts. In the meantime, go to the show notes and learn how you can follow our guests and find links to organizations, books, and resources that were mentioned in the interview. And be sure to follow CBE International on Facebook and Twitter. Go to CBE International's website, which is www.cbeinternational.org for more content and subscribe to their blog, their magazine, and their academic journal. Watch videos and listen to audio of past performances and events, and visit their bookstore, where you can find talented authors and subjects that will enrich your faith and equip you to use your God-given talents in leadership and service for the gospel for all, regardless of gender, ethnicity, or class. I am Kimberly Dixon with Mimi Haddad, 
And we would like to thank Landon, our support tech, and the team at CBE International that makes this podcast possible. We are Mutuality Matters. Thanks for listening. Thank you. God bless. Looking for more information about CBE and our mission for biblical equality? Then please visit cbeinternational.org for more information. And please be sure to tune in each week for new episodes here or wherever else you listen to podcasts.